Welcome to the Library of Mistakes, changing the world one mistake at a time. Welcome to the Library of Mistakes podcast. I'm Russell Napier, the keeper of the library, a beautifully designed building in Edinburgh housing more than 4,000 books about the mistakes that the world keeps repeating, particularly in finance and business. The idea of the library is to help us all learn from these mistakes and stop making them so often. There are also now libraries of mistakes in Lausanne, in Switzerland and in Pune, in India. Visit librarymistakes.com to find out more. The library is owned by Didasco, a financial educational charity based in Scotland, which also runs an online course called Advanced Valuation in Financial Markets, and its in-person variety, which we hold in London twice a year, called A Practical History of Financial Markets. To find out more about the courses, see the link to Didasco in the podcast show notes. Welcome, everybody, and I'm delighted to welcome uh, Denise Hearn, who joins me today, co-author of the book, The Myth of Capitalism, Monopolies and the Death of Competition. Uh, And over the next bit, we're going to explain why we need more competition, why monopolies are bad, and the degree degree of competition that has, uh, and and concentration that has developed. We uh, come from Edinburgh, so we have to begin with Adam Smith. He is the father of capitalism, or father of economics, I should say. He wasn't a big fan of it, so let me read from, uh, from the myth of capitalism. There's nothing new under the sun. Even in the 18th century, Adam Smith wrote in The Wealth of Nations that people of the same trade seldom meet together, even for merriment and diversion, but the con- conversation ends in a conspiracy against the public or in some contrivance to raise prices. A little later, John Stuart Mill echoed the sentiment, where competitors are so few, they always end up by agreeing not to compete. Yet these lessons are lost on us now. Uh, there are lots of descriptions and prescriptions as to why the world has got some problems at the minute. I think the great thing about your book is it focuses our, us on a different place. Could you maybe just explain the degrees of concentration we have now in terms of monopoly, oligopoly, whatever, and where, where we've come from, where we've got to? Uh, and then we'll go on after you've done that to discuss the uh, the issues that this raises. Sure. And thanks very much for having me, Russell. Um, so I think it's important, you know, to understand and something that we, I think we're frankly quite shocked with researching for the book, just how concentrated so many industries have become. And so we tend to think of the obvious examples like big tech or, uh, you know, the concentration in, in banks, which is significant in the U.S., you know, five five banks control half of the nation's banking assets. Um, but it really is pervasive across so many industries. You know, in, in many industries, you've got just a handful of players, uh, whether it's, you know, four airlines, um, You know, we've got in many regions in the U.S., you have one high-speed internet provider, uh, which, you know, ends up being sort of a regional monopoly. I think 75% of Americans only have one choice when it comes to their high-speed internet provider. Um, And, you know, you really go down the line and it shows up in, you know, industries you never would have thought of, funeral services, cheerleading, uh, kidney dialysis. Really, almost every industry you look at has been concentrating over the last number of decades, driven by, you know, waves of mergers and acquisitions, driven by private equity roll-ups. And, you know, increasingly also we've seen with private equity them getting into healthcare. So you're seeing roll-ups in dental practices and mobile home parks. And even during COVID, uh, there was a study done which showed that um, 
uh, nursing homes that were private equity owned had an 11% higher death rate because the quality of care was much worse. So this this problem of concentration shows up basically from birth to death <laughs> for Americans and certainly for other nations. Uh, you know, in Europe, this is a problem as well. But America has really perfected the art of uh, monopolization and oligopolization. And, uh, you know, there's many reasons for this, some of which are regulatory, some of which have to do with, you know, advances in technology, the rise of platforms, uh, globalization, and so forth. But in the book, we tried to really understand, you know, what are the macroeconomic drivers of inequality? And at the time, this was sort of a lesser discussed piece of piece of the puzzle. I think uh, what people forget is just how active the U.S. government has been in the past about uh, doing something about this. When I say the past, I think it probably back as early as 1890 with the Sherman Act and the Interstate Commerce Commission. Uh, and there's a tremendous chart in your book which just looks at the number of antitrust cases over the years uh, and the number of M&A. Uh, and we really don't have antitrust cases anymore. Uh, but in the 40s and the 50s, when, you know, I think under anybody's recognition, America was a capitalist country, uh, it still ran with very high levels of antitrust cases. Mm-hmm. Uh, could you tell them why that changed? I think in, I'm thinking of the two words Robert and Bork at this stage, <laughs> and, and why that was such a profound change, and and why an administration or a political system which really saw monopoly as something that was quite dangerous. One thinks, of course, of Eisenhower and the military-industrial complex. What was Robert Bork's role in changing that? Uh, when did it change? And, uh, and then we'll go on to sort of talk about some of the consequences of this. Sure. So Robert Bork is certainly, you know, someone who we, we tend to place a, a lot of blame uh, at, at his feet for the significant change in, in the zeitgeist. Um, he was out of the Chicago School, which essentially started a kind of intellectual movement to change the focus of antitrust from uh, challenging concentrated corporate and financial power to introducing what he called the consumer welfare standard, which was a way of looking at antitrust through the lens of, you know, as long as businesses say that they will, as they get bigger, as they merge, that they will pass those synergies on to customers in the form of cost savings, then mergers and you know, overall, the efficiencies that they that they bring are, are beneficial and effectively kind of created this big is good um, neoliberalist type of um, way of viewing the world. And that really infected, you know, so much of our economic policy making. I think there was a, you know, in 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 tandem with that, there was a shift to really looking at the world in these sort of econometric ways. You see this at the Fed, you see this everywhere where um, economists put themselves forward as sort of these neutral, you know, policymakers who, um, who had the keys to understanding how to align financial markets um, with the public interest. And we had 40 years of, you know, rolling back the merger guidelines, making it much easier for companies to merge in the 1980s. Uh, we had a decline in the the regulatory agencies that were in charge of antitrust, so they stopped bringing cases effectively. Um, and, you know, and many other sort of concurrent uh structural failures that provided the seedbed for this kind of concentration of power. Um, And, you know, we're definitely now at a point of diminishing returns from that worldview. And I think that now there is recognition across the board that this has largely failed. You know, there's a fantastic economist in the U.S. named John Quaka who 
did a post analysis of thousands of mergers and effectively the consumer welfare standard has failed even by its own standards um, because in 95% of cases where you had a merger that led to six or fewer competitors, prices rose following the merger because of course companies, you know, have pricing power and then they can use that pricing power against consumers. And so even these sort of supposed um, cost savings or efficiencies that were supposed to be passed on the to the consumer proved very illusory and it effectively should be called the shareholder welfare standard, <laughs> um, you know, because of, because there was really one group that benefited predominantly from, from this way of thinking about how to structure the economy. So, so we think of it on do economic benefits flow, but there's also the question of power and where power lies in any in the economy. And the, there are lots of great quotes in your book, but I was struck by one from the uh, a document written by the United States War Department just after World War II, which is called A Year of Potsdam, German Economies Since Surrender. And I thought I'd read from that uh, because it's interesting that the liberating power diagnosed uh, this problem in the, uh, in the in the Nazi system. Just as we must convince the Germans on the political side of the unsoundness of making an irrevocable grant of power to a dictator, we must also convince them on the economic side of the unsoundness of allowing a private enterprise to acquire dictatorial power over any part of the economy. Uh, I'm not that familiar with the work of, of Robert Bork, but what was his answer to this more political side of the argument that if a corporation gets too powerful, it's it's more than just uh, dollars and cents at stake. I don't think that they had a reasonable answer. I think that, um, you know, part of the, part of the sort of the intellectual bait and switch was again, proposing that, you know, markets are the best way of allocating um, for the public good. And that, that actually you don't have to make these political decisions because the market effectively you know, makes them for you. And so it's an abdication of recognizing that markets are actually public creations governed by democratically determined rules. And when you, when you abdicate the responsibility of setting those rules democratically, then you allow in that vacuum, you allow the most powerful interests to write the rules of markets in their favor. And so, you know, this, this is, I think, incredibly important because you see the rise of private institutions making public policy, you know, and again, we see this with the Fed, you know, the Fed is not a democratic institution. Um, you see this with the, as the sort of the political channels like Congress in the U.S. as they started to sort of sputter and fall into, um, you know, this, this, this sort of grave bipartisanship that made it very difficult to to get things through the house, then you, you see more and more of economic policy making moving to private channels and particularly, you know, seeing the largest corporations setting the rules of markets and acting as gatekeepers effectively on markets, imposing their own terms and their own private regimes on markets. So, you know, and this is something I'm a senior fellow at a group in DC called the American Economic Liberties Project that we've written about quite a, book, a bit since the book. And whether it's Apple setting the terms of the App Store or Amazon setting the terms for its third party sellers, you know, you see, even though many companies, particularly tech companies, tried to position themselves as neutral platforms, effectively, you know, they 
they were the ones that uh, were imposing their private regulatory scheme on onto markets as they inserted themselves as gatekeepers between customers and suppliers. So it's interesting because there's a deep conflict in American history between two forms of thought on business, which is the Hamiltonians and the Jeffersonians. It is ironic that we are now celebrating Hamilton with the uh, with with the musical. Uh, but Jefferson was more in favor of uh, the small competition mm-hmm. uh, and not large. Uh, and that debate has raged. And, and you know, you can see that in your uh, chart of antitrust cases, how it's ebbed and flowed with, with politics. Uh, but for those who are still uh, not sure that there is concentration or that this concentration is a major issue, uh, there's one line in your book that just jumps off the page. And it is in 1995, the top 100 companies uh, accounted for 53% of all income from publicly traded firms. Uh, but by 2015, they'd captured a whopping 84% uh, of all profits. It's difficult to argue that it's it's happened. Uh, are there Jeffersonians out there pushing back against the Hamiltonian view of America's future? And if so, uh, where are they? And how, how do you relate this this argument back to that? that thing that runs through American politics? Where are we in this great swing between the Hamiltonians and Jeffersonians? Well, uh, there's a group called that self-identifies as the Neo-Brandeisians, and Justice Louis Brandeis was, uh, was one of the central figures in early antitrust, you know, bringing cases very, very strongly against concentrated interests around the time of um, FDR. And so I would say people don't identify as Jeffersonians per se, but they do. Uh, there's sort of a resurgence of this idea that we need a, you know, a new deal. And part of that new deal comes with it, aggressive antitrust enforcement. And fortunately in the U.S., and I would say actually increasingly around the world, um, there, there has been a resurgence of interest in sort of reviving the original zeitgeist of, of the law. Um, because the, the point that's interesting is, is like, we actually have, you know, fairly robust laws that give a lot of latitude to rein in corporate abuses of power. Uh, we just haven't utilized the law in many years. You know, we just stopped bringing cases um, or in some, you know, in some instances, there might be bad case precedent that we need to um that we need to get around. But there is in the US, you know, Biden, when Biden was elected, competition was a core part of his strategy. He did a, a few things that were significant. One was appointing Chair Lena Khan to chair the Federal Trade Commission. Uh, one was, another one was appointing Jonathan Cantor as the um, the head of the Justice Department Antitrust Division. And then he also brought in someone named Tim Wu, who has written significantly you know, about concentration issues to advise on competition policy. And they put together, there was actually an executive order on competition, which created a competition council where the heads of, of many different federal agencies have to get together and talk about how competition issues affect their industry. And many of them had to report back as well with, you know, how does it affect the DOD? How does it affect um, agriculture, transportation, energy? And and then there were some specific mandates. There were 70, 72 different, uh, you know, mandates that were laid out in that executive order that are still working their way through. And so there's been significant um, 
you know, particularly under the FTC and DOJ, there's been significant pushback. They've taken on private equity. Uh, you know, they've done things that they that the agency has never done before. They're currently revising the merger guidelines to strengthen them. Um, they've brought, you know, many more cases than have been brought and brought many investigations. So, and you're seeing deals being abandoned. You know, you're seeing the Penguin Random House merger fall apart. Um, you know, they're challenging the Microsoft Act Activision merger. They, there's been a number of, of mergers that they have actually been challenging, which is um, exciting to see. And and I would also just add that there's a huge revival in public interest in this. And, you know, we, one example is the merger guidelines, right? They're very, you know, very technocratic in a way. And the last time they revived them in the early 2000s, um, or that they rewrote them, I think they had 38 people comment on the open public, you know, public comment period. And most of those were antitrust lawyers and economists. And, uh, you know, because of the popular movement that really recognizes this this concentration problem, uh, they had, I think, over 6,000 people comment uh, and, and write in to say, this is how mergers have you know, affected me negatively or positively, and this is what I would like to see happen. And so I do think that we are at a major turning point in terms of the there's a structural shift that's happening, and it takes a while to work its way through all the various, you know, the courts and you know, judges who are still wedded to the consumer welfare standard and so forth. But you can see that there is a significant, um, there's a significant groundswell of, you know, both at the, at the administration level, the regulatory agencies, and also, you know, at the, with the public to see some real action here. Yeah, and it's, it's worth saying that this wasn't always a partisan issue. I mean, the, the greatest number of antitrust cases seems to have been run under President Eisenhower, not under the uh, not under a Democratic president. So, uh, mm-hmm. uh, not all, not always as partisan as it is today. But then, what isn't partisan today? So that's just the way the word has uh, has has gone. So maybe maybe we. Will... I will say though that there's been significant bipartisan support in the U.S. for specific cases as well. A number of state attorneys general across. You know, both Republican and Democrat have teamed up to bring cases against Google or Facebook. Um, and, you know, although there might be slightly different motivations for why they want to use antitrust as a as a tool and a tactic there, you do see this being one area where there is, you know, there is a willingness to work together. That is uh, very encouraging. Not what, we, not what we see from this side of the Atlantic. Maybe we need better coverage of the United States. Uh, we, so we may not get a musical on Jefferson, but we might get one on Brandeis, right? That's, uh, <laughs> I like that idea. That would be great. <laughs> so, we, so we we obviously get the thing on pricing that, you know, that they they band together on pricing. There are many other consequences from this. We've, we've dealt with the political one, but another one you say is that it leads to lower investment. Now, I think most people looking at the economy see that low investment is probably one of our problems. Uh, could you explain how the uh, the greater concentration of power amongst corporations may be leading to lower investment? Yeah, I think I think you can see this in a number of ways. And again, there isn't, you know, I'm not into sort of monocausal explanations for things because the world is a complex adaptive system as, you know, and the economy is and and so there are many factors that play into this, but you can, you know, you can see it, it you can intuit that if there are only a few companies at the top of each industry, they don't have a lot of motivation to continue to innovate, continue to spend on R&D or CapEx improvements on their business. And I think, you know, this this also 
coincides with the kind of financialization of the firm where, you know, we saw in 2021 Tesla made more money selling uh, carbon market credits, regulatory credits and Bitcoin than it ever has selling cars. And most firms are now investment firms, right? Most companies are investment companies in some shape or form. And you've seen a huge rise in stock buybacks and you've seen ways of using financial engineering effectively to, um, to pad, you know, profit margins, to boost stock price. And, and these are not long-term investments in innovation that will put firms in good stead, you know, over the course of... Do you, do you, link, do you link the financial engineering to the issue of oligopoly or monopoly? I think that there is... I do think that there's a link um, where there has been some academic research to show that in more highly concentrated industries, there's a higher propensity for stock buybacks. Um, and, you know, and I think there's there's also some literature on what's called horizontal shareholding, which is because you can't think of companies in isolation. You know, they, they're owned by investors, they're owned by the capital markets. And if you know, if you think about Warren Buffett, he used the strategy a lot where for many years he refused to touch airlines. But as soon as they had gotten to the point where they were highly concentrated into four in the U.S., he actually bought into each one and he was the primary or secondary shareholder in each of the four major U.S. airlines. And so if you're Warren Buffett, do you want the airlines to compete against each other for market share constantly and be squabbling over, you know, who gets to do what route? Or do you want them to effectively tacitly collude to, you know, raise prices on consumers, maybe pull back on some of the, um, uh, the they call it capacity discipline, where they, um, they reduce the amount of flights that they will take from specific locations. So it's, you know, it's a way of restricting output. Um, and, you know, if you're Warren Buffett, that's what you want, right? You want the industry as it's as a whole to do well. You don't want the companies within the industry to compete. And so there, there's been some evidence, um, some academic papers that have written about this concept of horizontal shareholding, which, by the way, is illegal under the Clayton Act. It's just, you know, it really hasn't, hasn't ever been uh, brought in a case. But interestingly, this is kind of coming back now because um, recently there's been a lot of discussion with institutional owners, you know, who see themselves as universal owners of the entire market, who say, well, I can't diversify away my climate risk as, risk as an example. Um, and and so they've been getting together in these investor coalitions, uh, one of which is called GFANS, the Glasgow Financial Alliance for Net Zero that was started by Mark Carney. And they were saying things like, OK, well, we're, we're going to jointly commit as, you know, the 500 biggest banks and asset managers around the world to start divesting from coal. Well, then the Republican <laughs> Republicans got wind of this and they said, actually, you can't do that. That's an antitrust violation because you're boycotting an industry. You're collectively doing these agreements to, you know, to restrict capital to the industry, which is going to raise prices on consumers. And there is a, there is a kernel of truth to that argument that it is legitimate that that traditionally would be seen as an antitrust violation. But again, it's interesting because it gets into these questions of, you know, where, what are the, what are the boundaries of competition and collaboration in markets? And you can't just look at the firm level. Increasingly, you have to think about, you know, the multi-level capital market stack of who's collaborating at what levels and for what interests and what purposes. 
But well, we have much greater concentration on the shareholder register because of the success of three companies in particular in terms of the index firms, which are mm-hmm. Vanguard, BlackRock, and State Street. Uh, is this, this is, I think you've just indicated that that is making this problem more difficult to solve. Is that correct? They, they own, I think, 20% of, Amer- of corporate America. Yeah, I mean, the index funds are interesting because they do, you know, they do have a lot of power. I think even Jack Bogle, before he passed away, wrote a few op-eds about how he was worried about the success of his own product, you know, in terms of passive passive investing. Um, it's It's difficult to really, you know, I think the jury's still out in terms of how much influence those managers have. Um, particularly when it comes to influencing, um, you know, corporate governance. Obviously, they've made many overtures. BlackRock in particular has been quite vocal about some of its ESG commitments, which has made it a target for um, Republican attack. You know, but ultimately, my understanding is that many of the index funds, as an example, would, you know, would do share lending ahead of major votes. And, And so, who who ultimately is actually influencing you know the companies who who has the ability to sort of like put the thumb <laughs> down uh, onto onto corporations using their their proxy voting power and that is a little bit harder to disaggregate. Yeah, because I'm thinking back to the Eisenhower administration and when they were doing this. I mean, you were kind of taking it really against big families. So there were there were dominant owners of all these companies, and not all of these companies, but a lot of these companies in the Eisenhower era. And uh, you could sort of influence an individual or take action against an individual shareholder. And that was enough to change everything. But now we have this very institutionalized market and also this power in, the, mm-hmm. in, in these three big shareholders. It may become... But it's certainly a, di- a different business when you're taking these, uh, these actions now in terms of who the shareholders are. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And another interesting one is uh, interlocking directorates, which is when you have someone who sits on the board of two competing companies. Um, and the, the FTC recently and the DOJ did some joint letters to writing to companies to say, you know, we think you're violating um violating the the Clayton Act here on interlocking directorates. And they also sent them to PE firms, which is interesting because they were trying to make the point that it doesn't matter even if you have two two different LPs, if you're working for the same private equity company, that also could be illegal. Um, and so there were a number of people who gave up their, their board seats as a result of those letters. But this is, again, very proactive. I mean, this stuff hasn't happened, you know, ever really. Um, even you know even when it was first instituted into law but the the idea there was that it was trying to get around the jp morgan money trust you know example of what you're talking about where remind us all when when did the clayton act come under the statute book? clayton act was 1914 so it was okay. after the sherman act of 1890 yeah it was meant to try to close some of the loopholes that you know became apparent after the passage of the sherman act yeah. I mean, the, the other fascinating statistic in your book is about how many jobs were created by small companies and the growth in small companies and mm-hmm. the acts of some big companies in that regard. So we have to, of course, refer here to big tech. You can't really talk about this subject in the modern era without big tech. Uh, a, a stunning statistic in your book. I'll just read it out. Between Google, Amazon, Apple, Facebook and Microsoft, they have collectively bought over 436 companies and startups in the past 10 years. 
and regulators have not challenged any of them. Now, the book was written in 2019. Uh, any change on that? Yes, they have. They have since uh, under Chair Khan actually challenged some mergers and acquisitions. Um, but I mean, the majority, the interesting thing is the majority of acquisitions, you know, often fall under reporting thresholds because uh, I think it's in the I think it's in the U.S. It's 92 million now. Um, and so if a company is acquired for less less than that, you know, you don't have to report it to the FTC. And this is how private equity does roll ups, right, largely under completely <laughs> leaving regulators in the dark, but still amassing a lot of market power that way by doing a, you know, a high volume of small acquisitions. Um, with big with big tech, you referred to jobs. And I think that that's a really interesting thing, particularly because, you know, a lot of ESG investors or ESG baskets are highly concentrated in a number of tech firms and Google or Alphabet is the number one ESG holding. But actually Alphabet is, you know, more than 50% contract workers, so they're not full-time. And many tech industries employ relatively few workers, you know, relative to sort of what you would consider like sin industries, um, like even, you know, tobacco or, you know, other forms of manufacturing that might be a bit, you know, dirtier according to ESG standards. Um, Amazon is the one exception. It does employ, you know, a huge number, huge number of people. Uh, but, but yeah, and increasingly, you know, they're all trying to automate as well. So you're going to see the number of jobs reduced. And, and also we're seeing, you know, currently a big, um, a big culling of, of staff from the tech industry you know, as a result of the stock prices falling. Well, I think many people who listen to us are sort of interested in investment. You've made a very clear case as to why there's a turn in this, a turn in sort of what society through its politicians will permit in terms of concentration. But there's another uh, wonderful bit in your book where you talk about interest rates. So what we do know is interest rates have gone up, are going up. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I'll maybe just read this in, in a, it's quite a long chunk, but I think it's really fascinating as to the role interest rates play in potentially the formation of cartels and also the destruction of them as well. Uh, and you referred to academics here. After examining the evidence, Liebenstein and Suslow made the unusual discovery that the most important factor in the creation and breakup of cartels was the interest rate. Cartels are more likely to break up during periods of high real interest rates, presumably because higher interest rates require higher immediate rates of return for collusion. They found the relationship was almost perfect and observed that creating and sustaining cartels required patience. The higher the interest rates, the less likely cartels would be sustained, and the lower the real rates, the more likely cartels would cooperate and keep playing their games. Now, we have seen nominal rates go up, but we have seen inflation go up. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe you can talk a, a little bit more about what you see happening with nominal real rates, whether this, in terms of this trend that we see in terms of the concentration of power, uh, what role you might think that interest rates will have uh, and real rates will have going forward? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and... I don't presume to know, <laughs> uh, you know, entirely, but I do think that according to that study, you know, they, they should definitely have some, some influence in terms of, um, you know, the ability for companies to collude. And I did just want to mention, you know, something I've been tracking a bit more recently is 
the with high inflation, increasingly people are also realizing that part of the inflation story is related to market power. And even the the chief economist of UBS was writing in the FT recently about this that um, you know there's it, the inflation narrative has effectively given corporations the cover to be able to raise prices well beyond their rising input costs. And the the way you know that is you know you can see that. Pr- that profit margins have been rising as well and that they're actually at a 70 year high in the U S. And so, you know, how is it the case that inflation is at is peaking and corporations, you know, are experiencing extremely high profit margins. So, you know, that they're, you know, they're not necessarily internalizing the costs. They're passing them on to consumers above the, the, the rising input costs. And, you know, more broadly, when you look at um, the last, since the 1980s, I think in 1980, you know, markups above uh, above production costs was about 21%. And today it's more like 60, 61%. So you've seen that there's also been this sort of price and cost inflation, you know, that's gradually with markups hit consumers um, over time across industries. So in terms of how interest rates are going to affect, you know, the ability to collude, I do think, um, you know, I it's a really good question. I haven't thought about it actually um, in the, in quite that way. The thing I've more been, you know, loosely following is also just how many corporations, you know, are over indebted and the, where the rising interest rates are, are really putting, you know, many of the, many of those, those companies at risk. But of course, when the Fed turns around and just buys, you know, junk debt, it's, (laughs) It's uh, you know, just keeps putting a floor under under markets and sort of not yeah. not allowing that risk to materialize. So, well, I mean, the, the interesting thing there I thought was the focus on real rates rather than nominal rates. But I better go and read the paper. We all, everyone's listening. We better go and read the. Uh, read the what the I mean, what do you think based on that? So, so my view is that real rates are going to stay exceptionally low, and that that has that creates risks of corporatism actually. Uh, it sustains and, and makes concentration greater. So that would need greater political effort. It would mean, you know, there are two ways you can do this. There are, there's economic things which can break these things apart, mm-hmm. and there's politics. I think the economics of, of a kind of corporatist system could uh, could be more powerful if real rates stay stay negative. Uh, so that would need greater political activism to do this. That was actually going to be my final question because. Uh, uh, I've been around for a while, but I actually haven't seen a lot of antitrust uh, actions for the reason that you've just mentioned, because uh, uh, Borkism came along. Maybe thought, I mean, when I think of antitrust, I think of breaking up large companies. That's what sticks in all our minds, whether it's Marbell or uh, Standard Oil. Is that it? Is that what we expect from antitrust actions? Or are there other remedies that the state seeks uh, against monopolies that we are oligopolies that we should be looking out for now going forward? Or was it simply just breaking them up and making them smaller? I mean, I think certainly breakups are one of the best tools that antitrust regulators have. And, you know, over the course of the last few decades, they've tended, even when they've successfully won a case to, you know, focus on things like divestments or, um, you know, remedies, you know, small fines and so forth, which ultimately are pretty ineffective. And, And so we do think that structural breakups are important. You know, antitrust doesn't exist in a in a vacuum. There's many other areas of policy where it intersects. You know, obviously, 
um, the FTC is tasked task with consumer protection. You know, increasingly in, in the U.S., you're seeing the Cons Consumer Financial Protection Bureau also take a anti-monopoly lens. And the whole point of Biden's executive order was to get every every regulatory agency thinking about competition and how to foster competition within its own remit. And I think that that's incredibly important because, you know, trade policy affects this IP law. Um, I mean, so many areas of regulatory jurisdiction overlap with and influence the ability for, you know, smaller companies to compete. Um, and, and where, you know, regulation can also play a part in, um, in, in bolstering the incumbents, right, and in, in, in entrenching them even further. And we saw that after the financial crisis with Dodd-Frank, which was so burdensome uh, and so difficult to comply with that it effectively made it impossible for smaller banks, right, to, to comply with the regulation. And so there are, there are many ways where companies can also utilize the regulatory system to, you know, to strengthen their own incumbency. But I do think in terms of antitrust, I think some of the most significant things that we will see happen are definitely this merger guideline um, update, which is not legislative, it's rulemaking, but it significantly affects the ways that mergers and acquisitions will take place, um, you know, for the coming coming decades, hopefully. Um, and and what else? I feel like I'm missing a lot of things here. But, you know, there's also some interesting stuff moving through Congress, you know, that we're trying to get the the big tech antitrust bills um, through Congress. So I think it's really kind of a whole of government effort and approach um, because, and it also has to be coordinated amongst global regulators because, you know, many of these companies now effectively exist as parastate institutions, which are sort of untamed <laughs> by tax law or, you know, IP law or any one regulatory system. And so, um, you know, so I think, well, I think in some program, I think the OECD base erosion profit sharing movements are, you know, that's not breaking companies up, but it is attempting to control their cross-border activities to prevent yeah. uh, regulatory arbitrage. Mm -hmm. so, so that's at least a recognition exactly. that the power of company to arbitrage government has to be in some way restricted. Yes. Uh, and I think uh, Mrs. Verstager in, 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 in Europe has been uh, mm -hmm. more active than most big tech companies would allow. Uh, the encouraging thing is this is bipartisan or becoming a little bit bipartisan anyway, but also the history of it is that it's not necessarily bad for shareholders, that being the ironic thing here. I, I mean, I'm not an expert in this, but I'm told the breakup of Standard Oil, if you'd got your constituent parts, you didn't actually do that bad as a shareholder anyway. I'm not sure about uh, uh, about Mabel. So, uh, Absolutely. The world is changing for sure. And uh, you've just explained to us, I think, very well, even since your book was written, just how much it is be beginning to change and how uh, investors and us as citizens have to pay more attention to this. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, just to end on that note, exactly. I mean, I actually wrote an op-ed about this, how, you know, uh, corporations break themselves up all the time, right? They do spin-offs, divestitures, whatever. And ultimately, you know, it is, it generally is better for investors. Um, and so we shouldn't sort of be so shocked and appalled when regulators want to do it in the public interest. Um, but I also would just say that, you know, anyone who's been to the U.S. recently it is a more boring place because every small town you go to has a subway, a Bank of America, you know, some private equity owned retail chain. And it's just, it creates this sort of monocultural uh, cultural experience, which is, 
which lacks the diversity. You know, why do rainforests are the most rich, you know, and diverse places um, on the planet? And effectively, what we've done is like monocropped the entire economy and made it very structurally fragile and made it, you know, just less interesting, less fun, less funky. And so part of this movement is like bring back the creative power, the creative genius of the small entrepreneur, you know, of, um, of, of just the diversity of commerce that really, I think, makes for interesting places to live. And, you know, for- Denise, I will, know that, I, will know that, I will know that you've made progress in this. In my next visit to America, you've more than one type of cheese. That's what I uh, would say as a European. So. <laughs> yeah. uh, the book is, I mean, I strongly recommend the book. The, the thing about an investor is you have to ask yourself the right questions. And sometimes, they come out of the left field. And I think if you're not asking yourself this question as an investor, you, you're going to be uh, blindsided by what's going to happen going forward. Uh, it's full of statistics, I think, which make a compelling case for why Adam Smith was right. And capitalism is competition. And in many areas of uh, of our of our world, it has, di- it has died to death. So just a reminder, it's the myth of capitalism, monopolies, and the death of competition by uh, Denise Heron and, and Jonathan Tepper. Denise, thanks for speaking to us. Uh, maybe you're going to write another book now that things are moving in a different direction. And if so, please let us know and we'll have you back on. Thank you, Russell. I do have a next book in utero, <laughs> in idea utero. So I'll let you know as it progresses. We'll speak to you soon then. Thank you. Take care. Thanks for listening. The Library of Mistakes is based in Edinburgh. To explore it in person, Simply go to libraryofmistakes.com, register as a reader, and book your visit. It's all free. And to enjoy nuggets from our extensive collection of books, watch videos of our talks, and keep up to date with what we're up to, do follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter. Finally, if you enjoyed this episode, why not subscribe to the series? Simply search for Library of Mistakes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your preferred podcast platform.